Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus. Stay chill or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The following podcast contains explicit language. Lexicon Valley is brought to you by Audible.com, a leading provider of spoken audio information and entertainment. Listen to audiobooks whenever and wherever you want. Get a free book when you sign up for a 30-day free trial at audiblepodcast.com slash lexicon. From Washington, D.C., this is Lexicon Valley, a podcast about language. I'm Bob Garfield with Mike Volo, and today, episode number 20, titled Death to Potatoes, wherein we discuss the unseen global machinery of language translation. Hey, Mikey. Hey, Bobby. How you doing? Splendid, thank you. You? I'm great. What you got? I want to mention something about bedfellows that's sort of related to today's topic. Bedfellows? When you say bedfellows, you're referring to... <laughs> For those of you who don't know, Bob Garfield, co-host of the public radio show On the Media and of this podcast, wrote a comedic crime novel called Bedfellows that was published just a couple of weeks ago. Oh, of course. Now, now, it's, now I remember. <laughs> yeah, I thought you would. It's about a crime family in Brooklyn that has, like many families in this recent global recession, has fallen on hard times. And they've remade themselves as a kinder, gentler, less violent mob crew. How am I doing so far? I can't get enough of this. Do go on. <laughs> or as the president said the other day to Mitt Romney, Governor, proceed. Okay. So as part of this makeover, this particular mob crew adopted a tagline of sorts, which actually made me laugh out loud when I read it, Bob. Our thing is to care. Cosa <laughs> <Yeah>, Nostra. <laughs> yeah. Our thing is the literal translation of La Cosa Nostra, which is the unofficial name of the Italian mafia taken as a whole. So our thing is to care is a clever play on those words, Cosa Nostra, and their English translation. Even more interesting, I think, is the idiomatic nature of saying, you know, well, my thing is, or our thing is, that's an English idiom. 
maybe even an American English idiom. I'm not sure. And it, you know, it means what's important to me is X. Mm -hmm. So I wonder if you were to translate our thing is to care into Italian, say, would you lose that idiomatic flourish? I don't know. I've, I studied Italian for a year, so I don't know it well enough to figure that out. It's an interesting question. And as you say, it does foreshadow today's discussion. But can I just tell you one other thing that came up this week since we talked about bedfellows last week? Yeah. The, the last episode was about malapropisms. Mm -hmm. And I was talking to one of my agents who was reading bedfellows. And she was trying to tell me <laughs> that my writing is very expository, whatever she might have meant by that. But she didn't say my writing was expository. She said my writing is suppository. <laughs> <laughs> That's a very different thing. I didn't have that reaction when I read Bedfellows. No. So if ever there was a topic that we've discussed on this show that could spawn its own podcast with endless interesting episodes, it's translating and interpreting. And I think you probably know this as well as anybody, Bob, because your wife, Milena, has, I believe, at times been a professional translator. Is that right? Yeah, a literary translator. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, she doesn't sit in the UN with a headset on, but uh, she has translated Spanish to Serbian and I think vice versa. Found in Translation is a book that was published earlier this month. It's a collection of dozens and dozens of stories and anecdotes about the role, the often unseen role, as we alluded to before, that translation plays in the world and in our lives and in commerce and in the arts. And this is everything from the divine to the ridiculous. The authors, Natalie Kelly and Yos Secha, who are both professional translators and interpreters, talk about, for example, how Martin Luther's translation of the Bible into contemporary 16th century German had a really profound effect, not just on worldwide Christianity, which is well known, but on the German language itself. Then, you know, a chapter later, they talk about a woman who translates English language couture reviews into Italian for various fashion houses like Prada so that they can, you know, read for themselves what the critics think. You slipped it in real quick, but uh, props to you for divine to ridiculous. That was a nice turn of phrase. Well done. Oh, thanks, Bob. You know, these stories are each on their own an interesting insight into this global machinery. But taken as a whole, I think the book reads as a kind of argument for a kind of advocacy of access to translation services in society. And, you know, we'll ask Natalie Kelly about that, who we're going to talk to in a few minutes. Just a few words about Kelly. Her particular area of expertise is translating between English and Spanish. And she has done a number of different kinds of translating. She has translated Spanish language poetry into English, but she also worked as a telephone interpreter mediating conversations between first responders and 911 callers who spoke only Spanish. She also, it turns out, mediated conversations between American men and South American women who had found each other through a dating service. And these conversations that she talks about in the book would sometimes get sexually and romantically explicit. But of course, she had to faithfully translate. That was her job. Yikes. <laughs> so we spoke with Kelly. And the first thing that we talked about was an anecdote from the book that I thought was really fascinating and one that I hadn't known about. This was the story about Peter Less. Yeah, this is uh, to gasp. 
Just a little bit of background. Peter Les was from Germany, and in 1938, as things there were getting ominously worse for Jews, he left on his own at the age of 17 and went to Switzerland. As he would later tell the story, the rest of his family stayed behind because they believed that things would soon get better. Now, after a few years in Switzerland, Les was able to speak, in addition to German, his native language, also French and English. So he enrolled in this special program at the University of Geneva that was pioneering techniques in what is called simultaneous interpreting. This is something we now see at places like the United Nations, but at the time, it was really just in its infancy, training people to, while listening in one language, to at the same time speak the interpretation in a second language. As Natalie Kelly told us, while Peter Les was just about to graduate from this program, World War II ended. Unfortunately, his family was in Auschwitz, and they were killed in the concentration camps. His mother, father, grandmother, and his only sister. So all of his family was killed. Later on, after he graduated from this course at the University of Geneva, he was hired to go and interpret at Nuremberg, where they tried the Nazi war criminals. So he ended up interpreting for the people who were responsible for the deaths of his family members. Oh, my God. So he is, when you translate, in some way you have to put yourself in the head of the person you're translating for, and these people murdered his family. It's hard for me to grasp the position that he was in. It's hard for any of us, even professional interpreters, to grasp the position that he was in because neutrality and independence are a very important part of interpreting. How he was able to maintain impartiality is beyond me. You know, many interpreters were in similar situations because most of the interpreters who were at Nuremberg had family members who were killed in the Holocaust. But many of them broke down and weren't able to do the job. Some of them had to leave because it was so difficult for them to interpret all of the testimony that they were hearing. Peter was able to do it, and not many people can rise to the occasion. Is it overstating the case to say that he had to become one with them in order to be a fair broker of, of their testimony? Well, he actually says that himself. You know, he says you have to get inside their mind. You have to be their voice. You have to convey everything that they are conveying. What's very challenging is even if you feel like you're interpreting for a monster, you have to make sure that if they sound intelligent, you make them sound intelligent. He talked about the fact that, you know, these were very intelligent people, and it would be a mistake to make them sound like they weren't. What a nightmare. Natalie, you mentioned that these simultaneous interpreting techniques are still largely in use today, and when most people think of simultaneous interpreting, they think of the United Nations. But I think perhaps an even more ambitious undertaking of this sort, which you talk about in the book, is that of the European Parliament. Well, there are 23 languages that are official European Parliament languages. 23 languages doesn't really sound like that much, but when you consider all of the different combinations that you're dealing with, so you've got things like Greek into Estonian and Danish into Maltese, you end up with 506 different language combinations. And that's just for the 23 official languages spoken by the 736 members of the European Parliament. If we add in other non-official languages like Arabic and Chinese and Russian, 
we end up with even more combinations. So the way that the European Parliament does this is that they have 22 different linguistic units with 344 staff interpreters, so full-time interpreters, and they have 150 support staff. They, in 2010, delivered 109,667 interpretation days. Holy moly, at what cost? Well, so, you know, we interviewed Olga Kosmidou, who is the head of this division, and she says it's about the cost of a cup of coffee because it costs 2.3 euros per citizen per year. So it's really not that expensive when you put it in those terms. Yeah, but what if you put it in the terms of the total budget in euros? Is it hard for institutions to justify the, the highly labor-intensive cost of translation? You know, the other option would be to force members of the European Parliament to speak a common language, such as English or French, but that would really limit people's ability to participate in the political process. And then you would have to assume that all of those conversations and all of those political debates would only be in English or French or whatever other language, and then none of the citizens would be able to understand them. And I imagine that within the European Union, there were many countries who were reluctant to give up their national currency, let alone their language. And when language is so tied to identity and often national identity, it's hard to imagine that a common language would get popular support. Right. It's just impossible. That would never work. Esperanto, just saying, (laughs) put you out of business, Natalie. (laughs) Well, you know, it's funny because I went and I spoke before the European Union about the translation industry, and I said a few words in Irish Gaelic at the start because it's a language that I speak a little bit. My husband speaks Irish. And when they found out that I was going to speak in Irish because I had some words on my slides in Irish, the head of the interpretation unit came up to me and said, Miss Kelly, we're so sorry. We didn't arrange for an Irish interpreter today. I said, oh, well, I wasn't expecting you to get an interpreter for me. I I was just going to read a few words in Irish, and then I was going to give the interpretation myself. It amazed me that they were going to go out of their way to get an Irish interpreter for me. That would up the cost probably from two and a half euros per citizen per year to, what, you know, five? We're talking mochaccino. (laughs) (laughs) Where does the European Union find the Maltese-Estonian translators? (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's a great question. They're actually having difficulty finding interpreters who speak all of these different languages and these combinations. What they do when they don't have interpreters who speak those combinations, like Maltese-Estonian, is they have somebody interpret from Maltese into English or Maltese into French, and then another person interprets from French into Estonian or English into Estonian. And there's another sort of large-scale ongoing translation effort that you talk about in the book that operates in a much more sort of behind-the-scenes kind of way than presumably in the European Parliament. This is one that has the potential to actually save lives. And I'm talking about the Global Public Health Intelligence Network, or as it's more often called, GFIN. So basically what the system does is it scans news sources in eight different languages plus English and translating these articles automatically using what's called machine translation or automatic translation. Once all this information is translated, 
humans can actually review the information and spot trends. So they're looking for symptoms and looking for things like terms that indicate that there is an epidemic or that there's a possible outbreak. This system actually discovered swine flu and the SARS epidemic. And those alerts launched the response process that decreased the severity of the outbreaks. From what I understand, this system scans about 4,000 or 5,000 articles every day and looks for these keywords. And if some critical mass of keywords is detected, then it will flag that article and a human will then look at it. And the article, if it's in English, gets translated into the eight other languages. And if it's in one of those other languages, it gets translated into English. And this is done by machine? Well, humans are involved. So humans are actually training the machine and fine-tuning the machine. So what they're doing is if they come across a term that has multiple meanings, they have to add code to that algorithm to make sure that the next time it comes across that term, it knows to flag it or it knows to maybe translate it a different way. So one example that we mention is a Chinese term for AIDS called Bing. And the first part, IZ, is actually a transliteration for AIDS. The second part is a classifier for disease. There are many other terms that the locals use that are pronounced the same way, but they mean something slightly different. So one of these terms that is pronounced IZ Bing, but it's written differently in Chinese characters, means the disease caused by love. And there's one that means the disease of loving capitalism. (laughs) And there's one that means the disease of loving oneself. The system has to pick up not just the official term with those official Chinese characters, but also the slang terms. And it has to be able to translate them properly as well. That can only happen if there are humans constantly reviewing the output and looking at the local terminology and how it's evolving, because terms are evolving all the time and making sure that the system can recognize them. And yet, you can still imagine this algorithm getting tripped up. You give one example in the book about an article in the Tampa Tribune in 2003 titled Yellow Fever. There's a sentence in the article that says, an epidemic of penalties has thwarted many drives, resulting in a three-game losing streak and essentially leaving the Bucks season on life support. <laughs> There's, of course, a bunch of terms in there that would alert the algorithm, but it was an article about the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, the football team. Exactly. So it has to know when it comes across some of these terms that are not really indicating a disease, it has to know to ignore them. All right, let's take a short break and talk about our sponsor, audible.com. If you're not sure that audiobooks are something that you would like, Audible has a special offer that's no risk. You get a free 30-day trial membership. If you use their special URL that they set up for Lexicon Valley, it's audiblepodcast.com slash lexicon. Now, in the past, I have recommended various books for people to listen to, and this one is really special for me because it's a book that I really loved as a kid, and I think it's a great way for parents and kids to sort of listen to a book together. It's called The Westing Game by Ellen Raskin, and I don't want to give away too much about it if you don't know. It won the Newbery Medal in 1979, I believe. I have the copy that I had as a kid right here in my hand. There's a blurb on the back from Gene Shalit, who was with the Today Show at the time. Maybe he still is. I don't know. 
he calls the Westing game part mystery story, part play-along game, part do-it-yourself puzzle, peppered with insight and sparkling word twists. You can see why I really love this book as somebody who loved languages. It's an ingenious book. It's for kids, but it's really, I mean, the copy I'm holding right now says all ages. It's really for adults, too. And I think it would be great to listen to together. Audible has it unabridged. If you don't have kids or you don't care to listen to audiobooks with them, of course, there are thousands, more than 100,000 books to choose from, and you can select anyone as your free choice. Go to audiblepodcast.com slash lexicon. Okay, back to our interview with Natalie Kelly, co-author with Joost Secha of Found in Translation. Natalie, as technology gives us things like Google Translate, we get the notion that in a few years, human intervention will be more or less unnecessary, that algorithms will be able to do what you do now. But there's so much nuance, there's so much subtext, there's so much tone of voice and body language behind a spoken sentence. Will the digital world ever get us to where we are with human translators? I think it's highly doubtful. You know, I've interviewed some pretty important futurists and technologists and the people behind Google Translate, as well as Ray Kurzweil, who, as you probably know, is interested in this topic. Singularly interested. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So, you know, everybody that we've interviewed agrees that machine translation will have an important role in the future, but humans will always be needed, even if it's just to tweak the algorithms and to make sure that the algorithms are current, because machines will always be a little bit behind the curve. You know, my husband the other day sent an email to some friends of his about my book, and he said, apologies for the spousal spam. And of course, as a translator and an interpreter, I'm thinking spousal spam, how would I say that in another language? You know, I asked him, is that a common term? You know, (laughs) have other people used that? He said, oh, no, I just came up with that. And so humans are always creating new terms. And a machine will look at that, and spam is already a hard word to translate into many languages. But spousal spam, you know, I can only imagine what a machine translation tool would do with that. (laughs) Humans can kind of figure it out better because we have context, we have cultural knowledge. In this case, I had relationship knowledge. It's very unlikely that machines will be able to get all the context and the nuance anytime soon. Humans still have an important role there. That was a very good example, but I wonder if you have one where the stakes were a little bit higher than the hubby promoting your book, (laughs) where nuance made a huge difference and the failure to detect it created problems. I have plenty of examples of that. One that we often see in the news is we see signs in Farsi that protesters are holding that say, death to America. We're told that that's what they say. The reality is that that particular phrase is often mistranslated as death to America. Now, we have lots of phrases like this in English that don't mean death, but have the word death, like, he came in dead last, or you're killing me. I just love her to death. Oh, exactly. I love her to death. You know, that could be a phrase that could get you into a lot of trouble when it's translated incorrectly. (laughs) So these kinds of phrases are often a challenge for machine translation, and even for human translators, because sometimes they're translated literally or directly without taking into account context. 
So the phrase death to America actually means something more like down with America. There is an example that we mentioned in the book where Ahmadinejad was handing out potatoes to protesters because they were complaining and protesting about prices going up. And so he was handing out potatoes to the crowd to appease them, and they started to shout, death to potatoes, which basically means down with potatoes. Of course, they didn't want to kill the potatoes, but were complaining that this was not a good enough way to appease them. So there's no intrinsic Persian hatred of tubers, you're saying? (laughs) Exactly, Bob. And this gets at the point that you make continually throughout the book, the consequences sometimes of getting translation wrong. There's one example that I really love because it's, you know, as if Jews didn't have enough stereotypes to contend with. There's this anti-Semitic notion that Jews have horns, which is very likely the result of a mistranslation. Exactly. This particular word, it's a Hebrew word for radiance, and sometimes I've seen it translated as halo, karan. And this particular word, St. Jerome, the man who translated this, actually translated as horned. As a result, this led to many, many artistic depictions of Moses with horns, including a famous statue by Michelangelo and a relief that's in the chamber of the U.S. House of Representatives. So this anti-Semitic stereotype of Jews with horns is really due to Jerome's mistranslation. You mean, but for the translation, today people might be saying, Those fucking Jews, they're so radiant. (laughs) Well, you know, maybe they would have a picture of Jews with halos instead of horns. You suggest, and maybe you even say it explicitly, I don't remember, that we should view access to translation and interpreting services as a kind of right. You may even use the phrase human right. I think that I agree with you, but I'm not sure that I could personally articulate the case. What is the case for that? Well, the reality is that when people can't communicate, they're not able to access basic services. They're not able to get health care in many cases. They're not able to have access to justice. You know, they're not able to participate fully in society. You know, I'm not just talking about immigrants who might come to the United States. I'm talking about everyone. You know, let's say we have a tourist from Japan visiting New York, and he gets into an accident, or he witnesses a crime. How is he going to be able to provide testimony in a court if there are no interpreters available? Or how is he going to get medical care? The reality is, it affects all of us. And in fact, there's a, an example of medical care gone wrong in the book with a guy named Willie Ramirez. Yes, this story is actually a pretty well-known story in the translation world. The word intoxicado, which is a Spanish word, was mistranslated by a bilingual nurse. Now, this was a gentleman who spoke Spanish and English, the nurse who interpreted this word. But the problem is that even people who are perfectly fluent in two languages often don't have interpreting skills. And it's very easy to make a mistake, especially when two words look alike, if you're not a trained professional interpreter. So this nurse interpreted the word intoxicado as intoxicated, but it doesn't mean intoxicated. (laughs) It means poisoned. Yes, sort of. I mean, it's hard to just translate that one word with no context because the word intoxicación means some type of poisoning. 
So, like, intoxicación solar is sun poisoning. Intoxicación por alimentos, food poisoning. But you can't just say someone is poisoned in English. It doesn't really make sense. You wouldn't say that, but you would say he has food poisoning. So the interpreter ideally would have clarified in this particular case, but the interpreter didn't and just said intoxicated. So as a result, he was given the wrong course of treatment, and this led to him becoming quadriplegic. Hmm. It also led to a $71 million settlement. So do you think then that the English-only or English-first movements that have existed in this country for, you know, 200-plus years, that they are fundamentally misguided? Well, the fact is that we have a federal law that basically ensures that people can have language access. So what that means is any government agency, any government body, has to provide information in a language that people can understand. You're referring to Title VI of the Civil Rights Act. Exactly. Title VI of the Civil Rights Act guarantees that information will be provided to people in languages that they can understand. So this English-only, English-first movement is really not in keeping with reality. You know, there's a federal law (laughs) that basically protects those rights of individuals who do not speak English fluently. Now, if we want to be able to compete and have a workforce that can compete with workforces in other countries where they grow up learning several languages in school, we can't just pretend that we live in a bubble and that English is the only important language in the world. You know, we are reducing our linguistic resources, and that leads to major problems like we experienced after 9-11 and before 9-11 with critical languages that we don't have enough students who have learned them, we don't have enough even people who learned them growing up that have retained them because our language policy is so shoddy. Natalie, we were talking about higher stakes of translation errors. I want to play you a little movie clip here. Buck, I'm going to talk to the Soviet premier now. You'll translate what he says to me. He'll have his own translator telling what I say, but I want something more from you. Yes, sir, whatever I can do. I think the premier will be saying what he means. He usually does. But sometimes there's, there's more in a man's voice than in his words. And there are words in one language that don't carry the same weight in another. You, want to, you follow me? Well, I think so, sir. It's very important the premier and I understand each other. I don't have to tell you how important. So I want to know not only what he's saying, but what you think he's feeling. Any inflection of his voice, any tone, any emotion that adds to his words. I want you to let me know. Now, that was fiction, but is there any anecdote that is common in translation circles which is meant to express the ultimate example of why translation really, really matters? In fact, there is an anecdote about a Soviet premier. <laughs> Most of us know the phrase that Nikita Khrushchev uttered, we will bury you when he was discussing the advantages of communism over capitalism. Yeah, and was deemed very threatening by more or less the entire West. Well, that's what people thought. But what he was actually saying was something that means more like, we'll be here even when you're dead and gone, or we will outlast you. In other words, we will be here when you're buried. So it wasn't a threat to say we will kill you. It was actually more of a comment that communism would outlast capitalism, in his view. That was what he was trying to say. But Americans, of course, thought that this meant that we were going to be buried with a nuclear attack. You mean all those 
air raid drills that I went through when I was in first grade <laughs> were based on Nikita Khrushchev boasting about the superiority of his economic system? <laughs> you could look at it that way. There were other reasons to believe that there was a credible threat, but that particular phrase really put fear into the hearts of many Americans, and that was due to a mistranslation. Natalie, this has been great. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you. My pleasure. Thank you, Natalie. Can I leave you with uh, one thought? Sure. Death to potatoes. (laughs) 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 It's one of my favorites. Natalie Kelly is co-author with Joost Secha of Found in Translation, How Language Shapes Our Lives and Transforms the World. As always, if you would like to send us a comment, please do so at slatelexiconvalley at gmail.com. That's slatelexiconvalley at gmail.com. You can find past episodes of our show at slate.com slash lexiconvalley. Please subscribe to our feed in iTunes, where you can leave a rating and a review. I want to thank Natalie Kelly and Andy Bowers, the executive producer of Slate's podcasts. All right, Mike, are we done here? We're done, Bobby. William Gator. Uh, you what? Oh, that's Estonian for later gator. <laughs> See, if we had an Estonian Maltese translator, I would know that because I'm fluent in Maltese, of course. Of course. <laughs> <laughs> See you in a couple of weeks, Bob. Octar tard gator. Gator.